Um, sounds like we're still getting a little bit of feedback. So I wonder if everyone can just make sure that you're muted. Great, thank you. So yeah, just a total honor to be back with you and your Sangha. I have such dear memories of visiting um, many years actually, just whenever I'm in town in San Francisco, going to Sunday nights with Eugene and Pam. So yeah, totally delighted to be with you this evening. So I think we'll do the usual. We'll do about a half an hour of sitting together and I'll just lightly guide it. We'll do mindfulness of the body. And then um, I'll just share some thoughts and I'll say a little bit more about my particular social location and just currently what's been inspiring me in my practice. Um, really just by way of starting a conversation with you. Really looking forward to hearing a bit more from you about how things are and um, yeah, reflections, questions. We'll have some time at the end, half hour about for some discussion. So we'll do the usual. Um, my talk is called Courage and the Luminous Mind. And for me, courage really starts with mindfulness of the body with uh, having the bravery to feel the body, actually, sometimes not so easy. So we'll start by making friends with this body, this breathing body here. It's lovely to see all of you kind of settling in. So I'll invite you to do that now. And as you know, the four postures of meditation, sitting, standing, lying down, walking. And as you start to tune in, if the body is asking to lie down, or maybe even asking to start by standing, or even doing some walking, you're welcome to do any of that while we practice together. So just an invitation to really listen to what's needed right now and then take care of that. Good, and then as you take your posture, perhaps feeling the sense of relaxing. And you might even take a deeper breath and let the exhale calm and soothe the nervous system. Perhaps breathing out any extra tension, any extra holding in the mind. And then allowing your breath to come back to normal. And noticing how this going inside, this soft turn really like coming home. Perhaps even feeling a sense of deep belonging in your skin. And how is it to feel the body from the inside out? 
and perhaps feeling pressure in your sit bones and the cushion of the chair. Maybe feeling the earth under your feet. And as we turn in and make friends with this breathing body, this body made of the elements, it's always nice to remember that this body came from a whole line of ancestors. And so perhaps bringing to mind your family lineage and remembering you have parents and grandparents and great grandparents and feeling just the humanity stretching back in your family line. So many ancestors really. And perhaps honoring them, paying homage to them, sensing their life energies that were given to support you. And now also feeling the presence of the ancestors of the land. So remembering, paying homage to, honoring all the beings who perhaps inhabited this land before white people came. So I'm up in Southern Oregon in Lakgawa territory. And also the Salish people and the Takuma people lived here and still live here some. So wherever you are in San Francisco or Bay Area, maybe it's Ohlone land or other tribes, you might name them quietly and paying homage, recognizing the ancestors of the land stewarded it for so many generations. And now also remembering our Buddha ancestors. So many generations of folks in Southeast Asia and East Asia stewarding these practices. And really walking this path to its end. And recognizing that their practice is now benefiting us. All those generations of devoted, sincere, so much energy and discipline in the generations that came before and bowing, paying homage to, honoring them. And so turning inside to the body in some ways 
can be a kind of honoring all the ancestors that also are living inside of us. These bodies that are also vehicles for awakening that are helping us walk the path, carry it forward. And perhaps there is a deep sense of refuge there, just right here and belonging in your skin. And recognizing just the humanity that is just right here, the interbeing of it all. And so as we simply sit and breathe, recognizing this very simple, very sweet practice is never done alone. We're always doing it in Sangha, in community. So perhaps there can be a feeling of um, aspiration or intention to practice for our own and others' benefit. That may we also do our small part as ancestors of future generations to follow this path to its end. So just the gentle invitation to receive your bodily sensations. Maybe it's temperature or vibration or pulse. Maybe you're working with the movement of the breath. And as we continue here together, making this your own So choosing whatever object, body, breath, feeling pressure, weight in the body, particular body part. Choosing what's drawing your attention now and then continuing on in your own way. It could be an open, wider sense of awareness in the body. Letting your inner teacher guide you, your intuition, what's best now? And so we'll continue on together quietly, honoring this practice and the depth of wisdom and compassion that's developed simply by being here in the body letting it teach us the practice.
Noticing what the mind is doing, feeling the quality of the heart, and inviting the attention just right back into the body in a very simple and gentle way. It's welcoming and coming home again and again. I'm the coach of the uh... so with sounds, knowing sounds, noticing the mind responding, knowing Zoom mind, tech mind. We're welcoming all of it. There's nothing really to change or fix. Just come gently back to the body.
And so as we continue to sit and feel the body, you might notice this quality in awareness or attention, mindfulness that is warm and intimate, friendly. So feeling this quality of kindness, metta, and simple awareness of the body. Just knowing that this move inside and this quiet attention moment by moment is an act of kindness. You might feel your body full of awareness. And so also full of a quiet friendliness, gentle warmth. And from this goodness now, we might just invite a simple sharing, maybe sharing the goodness of your practice with everyone here. Sensing the community and the power of shared practice, appreciation for each other and the effort, the shared effort. And then if this goodness, your metta wants to be shared a little farther, just letting it ripple out. Maybe thinking of others you know in your life, including them in this goodness, the goodness of your practice. And then gently, this natural quality of sharing, letting it go, letting it ripple out even farther. And letting your heart open to all the beings known and unknown, near and far. Beings with the big bodies and beings with little bodies, all the medium-sized beings, just letting them share in your goodness, your kindness, your care. through the power of our practice here together, may all beings be happy. May all beings have peace in their lives. May all beings know goodness and kindness and warmth. May all beings feel safe and protected. May all beings love and be loved. And may all beings everywhere be free.
So thank you so much for your practice. Good to be here with you. There's something that is, um, yeah, quite unique, I think, in this technology that allows us to connect across the miles and to feel the shared intimacy of Dharma. And I'm feeling myself over here, like I'm so curious about each of you and your stories. Like, what are you bringing to practice this evening? Um, so maybe I'll just tell you a bit of mine and then we'll have time uh, to all share anyone who wants to. So I'm gonna start by naming my social location, which in itself for me has become a practice of courage. So uh, just knowing that this is an ongoing practice. So um, my great grandmother, Anna Maria Astone, was from central Italy. And she married her husband, Oscar, uh, As Oscar Astone. I just lost my AirPods, sorry about that. So she married um, her Italian husband and then emigrated here to New York in her mid-20s. And she didn't drive and she didn't read or write, but she could make raviolis from scratch. And she did for my mom and her three sisters. They would have bagels on Sundays. So a strong Italian line of women on my mom's side. My dad's great-grandparents also were immigrants. They came from Alsace-Lorraine, which right now is France. But when they came, it was Germany. And it's this part of the of Europe that was passed back and forth between the world wars, between France and Germany. So big German Catholic family on my dad's side. And actually when my dad was uh, eight years old, he told his mother that he wanted to become a priest, a Catholic priest. And so the, that was met with a lot of pride and celebration in the family. And as the second born of, of eight children, he, uh, went right into the monastery at a young age and went all the way through school, um, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, became a priest, um, was a Catholic priest until age 35. So he left in the 70s with a lot of disillusionment, met my mother who was younger, and she had to convince him actually to have children. He didn't want to have kids pretty committed to a contemplative life, which I think is part of my, my family lineage of valuing meditation and contemplation. But so they moved up from Southern California where they were living. They settled in Ashland here in Oregon. And finally, when my dad was 50, my mom convinced him to have a kid and that was me. And by that time they were hippies, big time new age hippies into astrology and art, they made art together and um, music, they were art artists. Um, I'm an only child because my parents were older when I was born. 
And because I'm white and middle class and um, raised in, in Ashland, I had good schooling and had the privilege of going to university and grad school. I have two graduate degrees. Um, I've found it because of all these privileges, they've really um, endowed me with a lot of ease in the world. So I'm able to move through spaces feeling relatively safe, um, not so worried about people mistaking me for somebody that I'm not. Um, I've also inherited a good dose of white supremacy culture. So I was conditioned to be a perfectionist and uh, be quite afraid of conflict. And a lot of, I find in my mind, a lot of oversimplified thinking, like either or thinking, it's either this way or that real sense of urgency often with time. And so waking up to some of this conditioning and realizing what it means has become a center of my Dharma practice. Um, very important now. Really internalized a lot of cultural like mainstream definitions of beauty. And so this embodiment practice and making friends with my body has been really huge because I've been driven quite a lot by um, those external definitions what it means to be a, a woman in this culture. I'm cisgender, so I've never had to correct anyone on my pronouns. Um, I never wondered if I was misunderstood because I didn't fall into the gender binary. And I'm straight and married. And so I've never felt a disconnect from people who are judging me because I wasn't heterosexual or who are making some assumptions about my sexual orientation. So quite a lot of privilege here, all of these identities and really understanding how to speak to them and how like understanding how they function in community and how they come out in conscious and unconscious ways. This has really become my Dharma practice. And it's uh, actually fun and also really hard. And it's all of these identities that are in the room that are sharing the Dharma with you. So that feels important to recognize that. There's all these lenses that are here. So I'm hoping that we can do some of this work together in understanding what awakening really means. Awakening means having a good dose of courage to do this work. It means recognizing the relative world and all of its intricacies and all these identities and the life stories and the personalities and the foibles, big, big mistakes, all of that, the humanness of it. And it also means allowing for things to really be not as they seem. And as we start to get into the moment by moment experience of aliveness, really opening to different truths about how things are. And then what it means to be orienting from our hearts in a world that is so broken and beautiful.
So the first part I wanted to speak about really is the body. Feels like it always starts there. And how it takes courage, I think, to be embodied. This is what Sayada Utejaniya says. He's one of my favorite teachers, a Burmese monk, who was a lay person for a long time. I know Eugene and Pam have studied with him. He says, no matter how difficult life becomes, we must keep practicing continuously. This is the only way. Eventually wisdom will outweigh greed, hatred, and delusion, and you will begin to gather momentum. That's such a beautiful vote of faith, isn't it? I mean, he's speaking also to white supremacy. Eventually wisdom will outweigh all the forces of delusion and greed and hatred. We'll begin to gather momentum. New avenues of awareness will open to you. Then you will begin to see and be part of a simpler and less complicated reality that you're not separate from, but is actually nature itself. Isn't that so beautiful? We just keep practicing moment by moment, building momentum continuously. We'll start to be a part of a simpler reality, that belonging, right? That we're not separate from, but is actually just nature. And isn't there kind of a deep longing in each of us for this. I find myself reading that quote and really wanting that, this sense of deep belonging to each other. So starting in these bodies means uh, trusting. It actually takes a lot of trust that just by feeling the body, we can wake up to the, all this other, you know, sometimes this project can feel really huge and complicated. So when we sit down, all we have to do is feel the temperature, feel the weight, feel vibration and pulsation and energy moving. Quite simple, not always easy. This is what Gloria Anzaldúa says. She says, the struggle has always been inner and is played out in outer terrains. Awareness of our situation here must come before change. The inner change in turn comes before changes in society. Nothing happens in the real world unless it first happens in the images in our heads. So isn't that true? What happens here, the way we inhabit our bodies, the way we think about um, these bodies and how they move in the world and all the thoughts and images, that's really influencing quite a lot of how we move through the world. Our, our actions and our speech are chosen. So I found the Dharma as a sophomore in college and I was struggling all with all kinds of um, external pressures around achievement and I was on the lightweight crew team, so my body needed to look and be a particular way. When I heard the simplicity of the Dharma, like all I have to do is just sit and breathe and allow things to be just as they are, not fixing them, not controlling them. What a relief that was. Like, oh, I can actually trust this body. I can trust the wisdom that grows by just real simple embodiment. 
there's this beautiful, we're lucky enough to live in Hawaii last year and learn just a little bit of the Hawaiian history and culture. And there's this beautiful um, practice they had of dividing the land according to different families. And the way they saw these land divisions was by responsibility. So they were kind of like a slice of a pie. They would go up from the top of the mountain, the Mauna, all the way down to Moana, to the sea. And these big slices from the peak all the way down to the beach was the family's responsibility. So each family would take responsibility for their particular slice of the pie, which was called an ahupua'a. And it wasn't like ownership. It wasn't that the family owned the land. It was that this family was responsible for keeping harmony and balance in the ecosystem. So making sure everyone is kind of working together, right? The, any farming that they were doing was supporting the balance um, in the other species. In the sense of really taking responsibility for this particular land stewardship. And I like to think about that in terms of this here being my ahupua'a. Just this body here is my little piece of responsibility. And how can I care for it and listen to it and make sure things are in harmony here? See, it sounds really simple. Even talking about it, it seems like, sure, obviously, that's what we're doing. But wow, sometimes it takes courage, doesn't it? To work through the traumas that are housed in this body, historical, generational traumas that we all carry. To being willing to open to its pain and its suffering, its very real dukkha. That takes courage and, and a deep sense of responsibility. Oh, this body made of earth and water and fire and air, my ahupua'a to steward and keep in harmony as best I can, of course, knowing I don't have ultimate control. That practice, that inherent kindness I was talking about, that to me feels like such a deep way to tend this land here, this heart. So we are learning to follow the wisdom of the body, which is actually quite countercultural. <laughs> That's what the culture tells us about ourselves and these bodies and these identities. It's just not true. So we learn to practice to trust our own knowing. My teacher, my Tibetan teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, he says that all we are looking for in life, all the happiness and contentment and peace of mind, it's just right here in this body. Our very own awareness is fundamentally pure and good. The only problem is that we get so caught up in the ups and downs of life that we don't take the time to pause and notice what we already have. So very powerful, I think, to pause and come home to the body, even if it's experiencing difficulty. Can we recognize the wisdom that's already here in the body, the nature of it? So as we continuously inhabit these bodies, we start to learn a lot about energy, don't we? So that's the next piece I want to talk about. And in some ways where you might recognize this progression of trusting in the body, then balancing energy, mindfulness, the spirit, five spiritual faculties, samadhi comes and wisdom. So as we begin to trust the body, we start to feel into the ways that we're using our energy. 
And again, dominant culture really tells us how we're supposed to use our energy. We push ourselves, we drink caffeine, we stay up too late, we're always overcommitted, to speak for myself. There's so much pressure around just getting so busy, so busy. Even during this time of the pandemic, it's like there's even more to do. So the importance of relaxing, using our practice as a real way to exhale, deep exhale to relax and calm the mind and body. So that's important, but also feeling this, the opposite side of that, like when we actually have time and space to do nothing and to flop around and <laughs> relax, there's actually a deep sense of power and strength that comes. Deep wells of energy are tapped through this practice. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about how we feel like we don't have energy and we practice a little bit and whoa, there's a whole wave that comes. So that's also courageous. Being able to feel into the natural strength. This virya is the Pali word. Virya, virility, energy, life. The life of the bulbs that are just starting to push up through the earth right now. There's a lot of power there in nature. And so how can we use our practice to tap into that energy that we really need right now to keep going? So this poem is one of my favorites lately. It's called Longing. And it's about the black pole warbler. Some of you who might've sat the New Year's retreat have heard this poem to where I read it. I'm gonna read it again by Julie Cadwallader Saab. Consider the black pole warbler. She tips the scales at one ounce before she migrates. She's one ounce. She tips the sails at one ounce. Before she migrates, taking off from the seacoast to our east, flying higher and higher, ascending two or three miles. So she flies up two or three miles during her 80 hours of flight until she lands in Tobago, north of Venezuela three days older and weighing half as much. She flies over open ocean almost the whole way. Oh, she is not so different from us. The arc of our lives is a mystery too. We do not understand. We cannot see what guides us on our way. That longing that pulls us toward the light. Not knowing we fly onward hearing the dull roar of the waves below. We do not understand, we cannot see what guides us on our way, that longing that pulls us toward the light. I think that's the kind of energy. And this tiny little bird who weighs an ounce can fly three days straight, way high over the ocean, loses half her body weight, that is serious energy. And for me, somehow that's deeply inspiring. Like if she can do it, then maybe I can in my own little way, keep going. Tap into the natural kind of energy that's here in the body. So I'm gonna tell a story about surfing, which also shows already, I've got a lot of privilege that I lived in Hawaii and learned how to surf there. But maybe there are also some surfers in, in the crowd here. 
So I think surfing, surfers are masters of energy. You know, they really learn to read the water, the waves, and to understand how not to actually output so much energy. As a beginner, I was like, paddle, 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 wear myself out in 10 minutes, trying to fight the water. But as I learned to read the waves, you start to learn, oh, okay, there's a certain point right as it starts to crest where it just takes a couple paddles, just a couple, and you catch the wave, right? The wave then catches you, and it's just like grace. And then we can just go and let the water carry us. That's a lot like practice, I think. That sometimes there's just like the little bit of a paddle we need, right? A little bit of momentum. And then we can kind of coast moment to moment, just a really light tap to keep the momentum of awareness going. So we're learning to be masters of energy, to balance that deep sense of calm and relaxation with the kind of energy that knows how to keep going over time, that's in it for the long haul. And I think if it's anything that I'm learning through this work of, of Dharma, especially in society where we have so much work to do around justice. It's a long-term game, isn't it? Things move so glacially. And there's a deep sense of um, trust and patience and the long uh, enduring mind that we need for this practice. We do that through sustaining each other, through coasting off each other's energy, through finding role models and examples that inspire us. So I recently read this book called American Sutta, American Sutra by Duncan Ryokan Williams. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. It's a beautiful story. He's translated all these diaries from Japanese into English. And a lot of these diaries are from uh, priests and other community members Japanese folks who were relocated into concentration camps during World War II here in the U.S. It's bringing their stories to life. You know, we we might think that Spirit Rock and IMS are some of the first Dharma communities in the West, but no, there are so many heritage Buddhist, heritage Buddhist communities, Japanese Soto Zen communities and Vietnamese Zen communities and Cambodian, all kinds of different communities here who were really keeping the practices alive before Buddhism was cool. And that's a long enduring energy. You know, these Japanese folks, they were told they couldn't be Buddhist. They should be Christian in order to be American. And yet they found ways in these concentration camps, building shrines out of scrap wood and finding ways to continue their chanting and their practices, even in the midst of such hardship. Such courage to hold this alive, to keep it alive. And Duncan now, he's the abbot of the uh, Soto Zen community in LA. They just celebrated their uh, centennial anniversary, 100 years. It's so wonderful and inspiring, I find. Very deep courage. So here is the, this is the key. I'm going to share with you my favorite quote in the whole wide world. And this is from the great Dzogchen master, Dogo Kensei Rinpoche. He says that the everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations. 
a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy, which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and a general running away from life experiences. So that's tapping into those deep wells of energy I was talking about. Developing this complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and all people. It's, that's inspiring to me. Wouldn't that be such a radical way to live without ever withdrawing or centralizing into oneself? Just this sense of like radical openness. It's quite beautiful. And humbling too, right? We're just not there yet and that's okay. Completely opening and honoring our tenderness too and the ways that we need to protect ourselves and boundaries, of course. But knowing that, oh, this practice leads to this real resilience, a deep sense of okayness. Oh, I feel nervous right now. That's okay. Whatever it is, anxious, judgy, ragey. Can we open to all of those? All of those very human experiences. So Dogo Kensei Rinpoche coming from the Dzogchen tradition, his main message was that we can do it because we have bodhicitta. We have these awakening hearts and minds. We can't really mess it up actually, the great perfection. So you've probably heard a lot of this from Eugene before. The mind is radiant, it's shining. In this particular um, sutta, it's in the Nikayas where the, the Buddha calls it the brightly shining, shining chitta or pabasara chitta, brightly shining mind, the luminous mind. And sometimes it's visited by defilements. We have, you know, the veils come over it, the obscurations, but it's luminous whether those defilements are here or not. And our practice is just remembering that again and again. We have this deep potential to be fully awake. Shabkar says the mind is vivid like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. That ceaselessly responsive part is so beautiful, isn't it? Because when we are in our bodies and balance our energies, the compassion dawns natural and uncontrived. Another quote from uh, Dogo Kensei Rinpoche, that's what he said. Once we practice and practice, then compassion will dawn natural and then contrived, not forced. Very natural shining out. So I had a bit more to say about simplicity, cultivating these conditions that help us stay energized and balanced and tapping into bodhicitta. But I think what I want to do is just come to the end here and play you a little bit of a song and then we'll open it up for discussion. So what I find actually quite uh, courageous and inspiring these days is to reflect on impermanence that the changing body, the changing levels of energy, the changing levels of courage, this can actually really uh, bring a deep sense of inspiration. 
even though it's also heartbreaking to watch impermanence on a subtle and also very coarse level, that when we contemplate the true deep change again and again and again, moment by moment, there's a kind of surrendering and that really radical openness that Dogo Kensei is talking about. Open to this deep truth of change to realize, oh yeah, I'm human. I make mistakes all the time and I'm continuing to wake up. I just keep flying like that black pole warbler. Even if it's stormy and windy sometimes, feeling the changes in the wind, feeling the changes in the waves. So when we start to see impermanence, it brings a tremendous energy and I think actually more courage on the path. So you probably know this chant. Some of you might know it. I'm gonna paste it in the chat here. And this particular version that I wanna play for you all is has a good story. Okay. So it's Anicca Wata Sankara. And Paul knows this story because in our community Dharma leaders training a decade ago, uh, we had a Dharma choir. And so that was a lot of our joy actually was seeing impermanence together, singing together, singing about these Dharma principles and really realizing that there can be just so much fun in this practice, right? A lot of it sounds heavy, having courage and balancing energy and staying in these bodies that hurt a lot. But actually there's so much fun in the Dharma. And so I wanna play this version of this chant. It's call and response. And so of course you're welcome to join in if you'd like to, or simply listen, let the words wash over you and perhaps enjoy the, yeah, just the real fun in this chant. Okay, so I'm gonna do this fancy computer share, screen share, audio share, share my sound. And here we go.
Yay. That always gives me lots of energy. I don't know about for you. So thank you for allowing me to share that with you. They're really just thoughts that, you know, this is what's been up for me lately. Embodiment, energy, courage, trusting the luminous mind. And letting it uh, rest all upon the truth of impermanence. So you've all been so uh, kind to listen. And I'd really love to open it up now to hear what's on your mind, anything, any ideas that sparked, comments, reflections, the good, the bad, the ugly, really anything. Um, I'd love to hear from you. So you're welcome to just unmute if you want to jump in or we could do the raise your virtual hand way, uh, whatever is easiest for you. Hi, Hi, I just wanted to say thank you since it was so quiet, not mm -hmm. to rush in and fill the space, but why not fill the space with a thank you? It was a really a pleasure hearing you. Nice to see everybody. That's mm -hmm. all. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to see you again. I see a hand, a couple of them, Jess first and then Paul. I can't stand the silence. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm having a hard time. Uh, I'm trying and I know that it's about not trying and I'm, and I'm, and it's just really challenging. I've been doing, I've been sitting for about a year and there was a real honeymoon phase mm -hmm. and it just came crashing down a couple weeks ago and I just want to stop and I want to quit and I'm angry at Buddhism for not fixing this and you know for not maintaining the 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 high I was feeling not the high just the leveling out you know mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what to do. I've been jumping around sanghas and I'm like, this isn't right. You're not right. You know, like I want something to fix this. And I, I can't, there is, there is no answer. There's no question. I just, that's all. It's a beautiful share, actually. I appreciate your naming that so much, Jess, because I can, I can relate totally. Yeah. It's such a part of practice, I think, is like not feeling the inspiration. And like, we talk about trust all the time and being like, this practice isn't working, you know? All the resistance, yeah. 
So I don't know if others can relate, but I do think we go through these different periods of big inspiration and feeling good about practice because it's working, because it's making us feel better. <laughs> and then when it stops, it's really, yeah, disappointing. Doubt can come in, all of it. So I just appreciate your sharing so openly. Oh, yeah, I see your hand. Uh, so first, just thank you. And it's very, so lovely to see you again. Um, could you read the quote again about um, being fully present in all things? Mm, yeah. Let's see if I, I can almost put it in the chat. Let's see. I can do that. And uh, yeah. Oh, there we go. The, the name. Yeah. So Dogo Kensei Rinpoche. Uh -huh. The everyday practice is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people, experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages, so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy, which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and in general running away from life experiences. What does it mean to withdraw and centralize oneself? Mm, that's such a good question. How would you answer um, I, that question? Um, in part, I think it's um, in response to what I don't like what I find disagreeable or uncomfortable mm. to put up some wall, some image of what it ought to be like. And then to, you know, it seems like a, a double whammy first to put up the wall and then to fight against the wall that I put up, <laughs> you know, like, you know, this artificial thing. Yeah. Um, but, but I guess the part of it that I'm really curious is um, centralizing oneself. Mm -hmm. And I think if I were to guess, that would be to, um, to lose the sense that one is part of mm -hmm. and uh, shift to a sense of one is the center of. Mm. And I'm wondering, is that, do you think that's what the Rinpoche meant? Is that how you understand it? I think that could definitely be one way to say it for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me recently, the way that's showing up uh -huh. is, and I can give this example right here now, because there, there can be this way of like watching the numbers on Zoom and be like, oh my gosh, people are leaving. I'm not doing a good job right? It can be all about like this turning into it's all about me or looking for praise and blame. Whereas it's the openness is sort of like curiosity. Oh, there's all these different pictures. People are popping up and going on and you know, what's happening. This is all interesting. It's all sort of not so much about this particular being being good or bad, but just the reality of change of 
you know, community and all the different dynamics that happen in community and liking, not liking, and that kind of radical openness that's not appropriating experience, right? That's not making it about me, myself, and mine, but just life happening all around. And then being curious about the ways that the mind, you know, likes it and doesn't like it and make it makes it pleasant and unpleasant. I think all of those things. So for me, that's a teaching on anatta. You know, it's a teaching on just being with the flow of nature when I can remember to, instead of taking things so personally. Yeah. But I love the way that you said it too. There can be such a location, like center of the world yeah. versus, yeah. Um, like where is this location anyway, right? It's the real nature of the mind teaching. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for asking about that particular quote too. Yeah. Endless discovery. Yeah. Anybody else would feel helpful to share? We can also just end with some more sitting, more practice together if that would feel better. Or what you're experiencing now in your practice. Hi, Michael. Hi, Devin. It's nice to meet you, first of all. Really nice Zoom. We've never mm -hmm. met, and I appreciate you being here with us tonight. Um, I'm feeling a lot of pain right now. Um, this afternoon, I spent two and a half hours with a very dear friend of mine, who had asked for this conversation. Um, she happens to be married to my very closest and longest term friend. And um, they're having incredible family struggles. They have a son who's 27. I have a 20 year old boy. Um, and the son and father, my dearest, longest-term friend, the father, are, are have been, in, and it's it the estrangement of the two is 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 coming right now, right like now, right today, and I am just working through. Frankly, it's been hard to even sit here tonight for me because my mind is just spinning with how can I be helpful to these mm -hmm. dear friends that, that I love very much. And I mean, the boy is my godson. I literally carried him out of the hospital in the bucket while his dad got the car 27 years ago. And um, I just will share that. And, you know, I'm looking into my practice and, and, you know, the quotes have been good, your comments. And I, I know intellectually, I can't probably fix this all at one shot, but I, I too, in my heart, want to just be as helpful as possible. So 
that's what I wanted to share. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing it, Michael. Yeah, and your beautiful practice to show up anyway, because sitting with that difficulty is not easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's so current. It, it was literally just an hour or two before the Sangha began. And uh, there were a lot of tears and just, there's just a lot of heartache here. And, and we're, myself and my friend, the, the mother, the wife, are, are, are going to reconnect this week after we've kind of let things simmer a little and see what some next steps may be. But um, maybe you have some thoughts or suggestions or I'd be open to anyone's. I, I'm grateful for the Sangha, uh, for your teaching, um, but it, it's hard. And it's, I don't want this to consume me going forward here. I have enough other stuff going on, frankly, too, that I don't know how much I can spread myself with this situation emotionally and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I hear you. Yeah. There's so much that needs our attention. Yeah. 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 I would be curious to hear the wisdom in the group because I imagine others have are working with similar situations or have ideas. Um, I'll just say quickly for me recently, my compassion practice, has been really based on the Tibetan practice of Tonglen. So kind of turning towards the suffering first for myself, breathing it in and really letting it dissolve in my heart. Like knowing this heart has the, it's like bodhicitta that can just burn through the suffering, like breathe it in mm -hmm. and then feel it burn, burn up and then breathe out the spaciousness and the freedom and the, um, yeah, whatever it is that comes in the form of brightness or love or compassion, breathing out the goodness then breathing in again, the whole body, all the pores taking in like smoke or like dusty kind of all the dukkha, the heaviness of it, bringing it in, breathing out goodness. Cause that to me feels like it's reversing our knee jerk around. Like we don't want to suffer and we only want, and it's one way we can feel like we're maybe alleviating the suffering for others. Like by breathing this in, may they not feel this. May I take it on their behalf. And there's this real kind of sense of even in your own practice, having the brave heart to want to take it from them, take it on and then breathe them the spaciousness that they need. I, I oh, hear you. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the meditation this evening, I found myself doing a meta for me and for mm -hmm. them, you know, mm -hmm. and that felt that felt good. Just mm -hmm. wishing them peace and and health and happiness. And I'm I just there's a potential for the entire little family nucleus here to um, fall apart mm -hmm. and for, for not only the estrangement of, of the father and son, which was really near and dear to my heart as a single parent father, but also 
with him with with her and him in in a possible splitting up it 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 it's just uh it's just such a difficult situation so anyway yeah. i will continue my good wishes and hopefully things will come this week that and in the coming days that um, allow me to be useful and a friend and hopefully they'll they'll be relieved we all will of, of some of this dukkha of some of this suffering you know so thank you very much for your time and for everyone for letting me kind of just really speak the truth here I so appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And thank you for sharing what's happening there and kind of allows us in also to wish that you and the family and everyone also, we can send our good wishes to you and know that you're held. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sorry that's happening right now. <laughs> you're somebody's clock. <laughs> That would be mine. Yeah. So, so it must be coming up on seven thirty. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Hey, Michael. I just wanted to let you know my finger was on the leave button as soon as you like, you know, like, and then I just my heart completely opened to you, and I just I I really hope that that you can sit with it, and I. I'm, I will, I will try to give my strength to you to give to them. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. Beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think it's about time that we finish. Should we dedicate our merits, everyone? Okay. So we can think that through all of our good intentions, our sincerity, our efforts, the opening to resistance in practice, the opening to the very real heartbreak in this world, we can think that all of this courageous practice is just rippled out and shared with everybody that through our efforts may the world know deepening harmony deepening peace deepening trust may we learn to belong to each other and may we continue to wake up in this way knowing we're not alone we're doing it together Thank you for your teachings. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.